Textile Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Deus Textile Podcast, a place where some of the most progressive and innovative builders, thought leaders, and traders in the crypto space come together to discuss all areas of the crypto industry. Whether you're into DeFi, Layer 1s, Layer 2s, NFTs, or anything in between, we've got you covered. And as a reminder, nothing said on this podcast should be construed as financial advice or as a solicitation to buy or sell any digital asset or security. The comments, views, and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests on the podcast are their own. As always, you'll need to do your own research. Now, with that out of the way, let's get to the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Deus Ex Dow podcast. I will be your host today. I'm Brucey, a council member of Deus Ex Dow, um, entrepreneur and avid DeFi enthusiast. And I'm joined here today by Token Bryce from Liquidy. Hey, Token Bryce, how are you doing, sir? Hi, Bruce. I'm glad to be here. <clears throat> nice. We're we're really happy to have you on. Um, so today we're gonna we're gonna talk about Liquidy. And I know you have a, a broad background in DeFi and recently got involved with the protocol. Um, so it's great because I already get the sense you have both a, a DeFi native point of view, but then also are, are involved with a protocol that you love. Um, yeah. And so maybe to begin, like, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you got to, to this place? Sure. So uh, <laughs> essentially, I started... So pretty much my whole career has been in DeFi at this point. Uh, so I started working, I don't know, six or seven years ago, doing some <clears throat> some communication marketing for technically oriented startups. So they were like software as a service, API providers, looking for someone essentially between the world of geeks so they could understand their docs and their code and stuff. And also with a marketing vibe so they could communicate it and, and onboard users. Um, so yeah, during one of my job uh, back in the regular startup world, Web2 world, let's call it like that, um, I ran into a teammate that was uh, already trading crypto back then. It was in 2018 or something, 2017 maybe. And so yeah, with him I discovered, I started a bit like everybody, you know, flipping shit coins and, <laughs> and doing some random stuff. Um, right. but, but yeah, quite quickly, uh, I came more to uh, the Ethereum DeFi side of things. So um, I got interested when it was really starting, you know, back then the DeFi was essentially MakerDAO and Uniswap. And that was DeFi, you know, <laughs> that was mm -hmm. the two working things we had in DeFi. Um, so, yeah, I got involved pretty much from the get-go, uh, personally also with my, my own money. And uh, <clears throat> also created um, a place, a community in France we call DeFi Friends, which is uh, the vision back when it was created like three years and a half ago, I think something like that, was um, that back then literally everything was in English. Mm -hmm. And there was starting to be some involvement of the French community, but we're all in English, essentially all talking English to one another. So we created this place for um, passionate to discuss, discuss about DeFi. And um, yeah, also a cool place because we have the French builders in there. So there is a lot of discussions between, you know, French curious and French builders, essentially. So mm -hmm. I'm really happy with where the community is at now. Um, yeah. You've got some some great talents in France. Um, I, mm -hmm. uh, I, I really love the Angle uh, protocol. Um, I yeah. think Jarvis Network, even though some of the guys, they're, they're not in France, but they are from France. 
Um, I, yeah. I, think, I think it's important. Um, that, Some uh, prominent figures we forget about, like that are French speaking, but technically not French. So like Maki right. from Sushi. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. When we did an interview of him in French, like everybody was, wait, wait a minute, <laughs> he speaks French. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Julian, Steakdow, etc. Um, okay, okay. Well, it's awesome you're doing that to contribute to the community. Um, and uh, yeah, so... Uh, I'm, I'm sure then we're going to find an opportunity to, to connect at uh, the community conference in Paris as well. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, essentially, uh, I guess <laughs> to finish the story. Yeah. So I was involved mm -hmm. more on the, let's say community side of DeFi first, more, you know, so I have my own blog where I explain DeFi protocols. Uh, I host live session in French too, and the DeFi friends community meetups, things like that. Um, and yeah, I I'm got involved like as uh, advisor or just governance participant in a few projects. And uh, just recently, as you were saying, uh, about two months ago, I made the jump with Liquity, um, which I was following since they went live uh, a year and something ago and using pretty much since that date. So it was really exciting for me to, to you know, go back to work, but this time for a project where I'm like 100% aligned with the, the vision and, and what's being proposed. I, I love hearing that stories where people who are active contributors then formally get involved is just, uh, I think, exemplary of the decentralized nature of crypto, right? And uh, how it's possible to kind of show your worth by just contributing. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was the cool thing is when I saw the job announcement they were looking for head of growth and like, I pretty much, you know, I knew I was the perfect fit for it because like I came to them and I was like, okay, so I wrote a post about you. I made a two hours video tutorial. I'm talking about you here and there. Uh, so, you know, it was really, really synergetic. Um, nice. And just, okay, you know, well, was, well, congrats. Um, yeah. So, you know, Liquidity for myself has been a protocol that I studied, I think, close after it came out. And then recently, it has really started showing its robustness with every additional day that the system has remained um, stable. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that many people who are listening have noticed that um, being a LUSD depositor in the stability pool can be a great strategy to accumulate Ethereum if you have yeah. a long-term bias, right, and you're trying to buy effectively liquidations. Um, and, and that really revived some of our interests as well to come back and look at the protocol. And, and one of the things, you know, that really stood out to me is the design and what seems to me like the philosophy that underlines the liquidity protocol is that it's it's decentralized, it's governance minimized. It's so not minimized, absent of governance. There right. is no governance. You can own a billion liquidity token. You can't change a thing about the liquidity protocol. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. It's important should, because should, some should, projects should, are doing yeah. governance minimization. I'm sorry, I'm picking on this. Extreme governance minimization. No, but I'm, I'm glad yeah. you pointed out because because it's it's such a contrast versus everything that we're commonly sold, right? Which is the token has a utility and staking really is just a sink for the emissions and everyone's mm -hmm. voting, but it's concentrated anyway. Um, and this just seems like the polar opposite. And it makes me think that the founders, and I'm not sure if that's Robert and or a team, but, yeah, but that Robert was, and Rick, mostly, the two co-founders. Two co-founders, okay. Yeah, so it, it makes me think that they have this really prescient vision for, okay, well, this is actually what's going to work and, and be, um, be anti-fragile. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I'd love to hear kind of your, your perspective on the protocol, you know, like what piqued your interest in the first place? 
Yeah, so there are, there are quite a few things at the technical level that can pick the interest. But I guess, yeah, what caught me up initially was uh, that I would call liquidity as a protocol opinionated in the sense that, you know, mm -hmm. it has a vision and, and stays true to it. And I guess later on in the discussion, we might talk about like what's happening with Maker, for instance, right now, where we could say the problem with Maker right now is that Maker is at the exact opposite. There is no opinion in Maker. And, and so now the community is a bit struggling because there are several competing visions, all at first glance equally valid, and the community doesn't know which way to go because at the protocol level, at the project level, there was never a clear vision of, you know, either, oh, we're going to be the most resilient stable coins, or we don't care, we're onboarding all kinds of real world assets and adding all kinds of centralization to the system as long as it makes money. <laughs> you know, that's essentially the two extremes of the spectrum that they're split into. So yeah, that's something, uh, to go back to liquidity, something I really like is this vision of um, uh, trustlessness, essentially. So the whole uh, code operating the protocol, the smart contract, are uh, immutable. They cannot be modified under any circumstance. So uh, it differs vastly from most of DeFi because, as you may know, <laughs> most of DeFi usually operates under a logic that uh, the protocol codes, the smart contracts powering the protocol, can be modified, usually with a governance vote, but sometimes just by um, a multisig or, or other type of actors. So uh, in that regard, liquidity avoid this uh, pitfall that is uber common in DeFi, which is, oh, nice, your thing is, is more or less decentralized. But at the end of the day, there is this point of the system where I'm trusting a multisig or where I'm trusting a governance to be sensible and do the right thing. So uh, yeah, at this level, it's very credible in terms of, uh, you know, if there is a, a stable coin Armageddon, essentially, I'm confident LUSD will be amongst the last one standing. Mm -hmm. uh, and well before, you know, it would stand after die. that's for sure. Uh, it would stand after like all kind of flavor of the month stable coins that are very weak from a security level, like uh, Abracadabra meme, or it would stand even against very respected stable coins that just don't maximize for resilience, like Frax. You know, it, it was never in the Frax vision to be like, oh, we're going to be uber decentralized and use trustless collateral. Frax is essentially the uh, money-making maker, I want to say, you know, they accept that the collateral is trusted, but then they build a system around it to maximize the usage of that collateral and produce revenues. And like maker in the in-between, essentially. And I would say liquidity is at the very extreme other end of the spectrum where not a single compromise is being taken, either at the collateral level, where it's only is accepted for security reasons, but also at the very a design level of the protocol where every single time there was a choice to be made, it's been made to maximize resilience. And so, you know, this is from here, you find a lot of technical uh, dimensions of liquidity. So for instance, the fact that there is no official front end, but instead uh, a myriad of front ends user can use because the liquidity team doesn't build the front end itself. The only thing it does is building what we call a front end kit that makes it super easy for any project or team or random dude in his cave to host a liquidity front end if he wants. And therefore, there's not that centralization risk, right? On the liquidity team, I guess. Yeah. Um, but but what you say is is so interesting because it is a stark contrast to everything else that happens in DeFi. And 
I'm, I'm curious, having now worked with the team for a while, what's your sense of the, the philosophical underpinnings or the beliefs that sort of led to this design? Because it's, it's just so outstanding in a way, mm -hmm. so out of the ordinary. Yeah, so <laughs> this, I have this image uh, I use sometimes in DeFi because I, f I find it confusing is, um, so there's this notion in software development when you build software that is for a critical function, like typically, let's say the autopilot of a plane or you know something that can kill people if it bugs, not just, oh, damn, it's bugging, but actual people dying. Mm -hmm. We call that mission critical software. And it comes with like a very, very thorough methodology to develop it where every single change is tested abundantly in various environments and so on, rolled out progressively. So a very prudent development approach. And essentially, you know, with just common sense, this is what you would expect to see in all of DeFi, you know, in core DeFi, you would expect MakerDAO or Chainlink or all those like household DeFi to be operating other, under that logic of, of being mm -hmm. very, very careful with the development. And it's not actually the case. I think Liquidity is actually the only one of the few teams that does that. And this is what I got from the team is, they're very prudent, testing everything, taking their time. They don't mind delaying a launch by a month if it means you know they have a better understanding of how the product is going to behave. They have a better economic modeling of the user interacting with it and so on. And so, yeah, I think this is um, a behavior that should be more common in DeFi. Is you know we have it at the code level where you no know, users are are a bit wary of using unaudited protocols. So like main protocols launching are usually audited. But technical audits are not sufficient by itself. Ideally, you need to prove the uh, economic viability of your model as well before launch. That's a that's an important note. So, what do you mean with that? Like economic viability. So, in in the case of um, liquidity, what what's the example of that? Is that the protocol existing and basically not breaking down over time, and that attracting more capital? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. So economic viability are things like, you know, for instance, for, for liquidity, we have the stability pool where user uh, can deposit some LUSD and it would be used to uh, liquidate when it's necessary uh, the troves that are under collateralized. Well, part of the economic analysis of liquidity is to assess whether or not the incentives and the model for the stability pool is balanced enough so that mm -hmm. in any market condition, even the most adverse one, there will still be a supply in the stability pool and will be operating as um, needed. Mm -hmm. But you know, and now this is where the mission critical vision steps in is liquidity doesn't stop here. So of course there were analysis of the economic of the stability pool done before launch, modeling and so on. But liquidity also account for the situation where the stability pool is empty at a protocol level. So, you know, it's like doing everything you can to make things, to make sure things will go as planned but also at the design level, accounting for failure of various elements of the system. And I think this is really how you build an anti-fragile kind of DeFi protocol. Yes. And we should get into that. Like, I want to put a pin in that for a second, but I'd love to talk about some extreme scenarios in a second, you know, like, okay, so what happens when we have a total cascade? Um, but, but before we get into that, you know, just talking about this immutability. So how do you guys balance the code being immutable and they're not being governance with still continuing to improve upon the protocol. 
because correct me if I'm wrong, you know, for me, when I revisited the docs, which I believe I read for the first time, maybe a year ago, actually nothing had changed. Maybe some uh, things had been optimized, but I don't think anything was bolted on or new features were introduced. And that may just be my ignorance, but I'm, I'm curious how the team thinks about that. Sure. So yeah, as I was saying earlier, the code of the protocol is immutable, meaning there are no change, changes being made to the protocol. So you're correct in saying that nothing has changed at the protocol level since mm -hmm. a year ago mm -hmm. when it launched. So no, it doesn't mean the team cannot do anything. Uh, the team is more concentrated around um, the ecosystem around the protocol, let's say. So, you know, helping the liquidity on LUSD, getting LUSD integrated and supported for various use cases, the so liquidity on the LQTY token, or maybe deployment on new chains, integration of the liquidity protocols through new rollups or things like that. So there are like a bunch of things we can do without changing the code of the liquidity uh, protocol on mainnet. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we're focusing on right now. And there is also, uh, it's gonna be mostly teasing, I'm sorry, but there is also <laughs> another sure. product uh, the liquidity team has been working on for a while, as you understand now, because the process for development is very thorough and, and careful. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it should be ready for uh, for the public attention quite shortly. And um, the cool news is it's, um, it's a new protocol, essentially, and it's applicable to all kinds of token. But since we are uh, quite confident in what we're building, we will be testing it with our own token first. So the idea is we'll test the concept on LUSD, on LQTY, and then once it's uh, fine-tuned enough, we'll release a version that we call generalizable, meaning it can accept as an entry point any token and work for any project, essentially. Wow, that's exciting. And so what what will this protocol do? Ah, that's a bit of the, okay, I, I can go as far as saying that it will help uh, grow protocol on liquidity. So it addresses one of our core concerns for liquidity, but it's not just a concern of us, it's a concern of pretty much every DeFi project that has a token has concern and cost associated to attracting and maintaining liquidity. I see. Okay, well, that is that is really interesting. Um, and that composability is something we should unpack as well. Um, but just, you know, just this means that the think of the team of liquidity basically is shepherds, right? Not just as people continuing to to bolt on new features, right? But instead you are safeguarding the ecosystem more so than another protocol would, uh, which I think is a, a good framework to keep in mind. Yeah, um, and, and staying in touch with what's relevant within DeFi and kind of finding those opportunities for, for LUSD or Liquidity to shine. That's a bit of my job essentially as Liquidity is, you know, to like integrate within the spider web that is DeFi. <clears throat> and, and does that mean then that Liquidity would forever stay on ETH mainnet? And, and to what extent does that mean that Liquidity's continuation depends, I guess, on foundationally Ethereum not changing so much? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I thought that would be a breaking change on, on Ethereum. You know, it, it has, has, has never happened yet. But yeah, indeed, it means we are um, we're on Ethereum. The protocol is on Ethereum and we'll stay on Ethereum. No, the core thing is it doesn't mean the only way to access the protocol will only be SVM mainnet. So there is this approach that people kind of forgot about because 
we used to talk about it a couple of years ago, but it was far away, but it's actually coming in a few weeks. Uh, it's a method called essentially DeFi pooling. And uh, I think Aztec are going to be the pioneers on, on this one with Aztec Connect. And essentially the idea is that you are on a rollup, potentially a privacy, uh, uh, privacy enabled rollup like uh, Aztec Network. And uh, you're making interactions with a mainnet protocol. And the rollup will batch those interactions and, and replicate them on mainnet, essentially. But so you are interacting with liquidity mainnet, like opening a trove or depositing into the stability pool, but from a rollup. So it means, you know, a lower transaction cost. Very so there are ways like this that we can make, you know, address one of the concerns of the user, which are the gas cost, but also keeping the guarantees uh, of liquidity. Because that's also some something people often forget is, you know, it's on Ethereum, not just for many reasons, but one of them being because it needs the mo most trustless collateral, that is ETH, and it needs the uh, uh, execution environment with the less uh, trust required in various actors, that's Ethereum, and so on. So, you know, it's like you could make a liquidity fork on AVAX and that happened, but then you lose a lot of what makes liquidity interesting. Because, you know, your main collateral would be AVAX. That's way more trusted. Uh, the execution environment can have issues, shortages, and so on. And, and, and yeah, so it's part of the value of liquidity to be on mainnet, essentially. Yeah, the, the trustlessness of the protocol is part of its appeal, the immutability. I, I totally agree with that. And that seems very much aligned with the ETH ethos. Um, exactly. but, but this Aztec network implementation that you're talking about, like, is that something you guys would build or is it something you would encourage the community to? So it's, it's something, uh, in progress actually. So the Aztec team is working on getting the Aztec connect out. And I think they're trying with a few other protocols first, some, some more simpler use case, but then they're moving straight to liquidity. And I think it should be the first, uh, borrowing service where they try their approach. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how it's going to go. Awesome. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. Um, okay, so going deeper into the, the ecosystem. So in preparing for this interview, when we looked at LUSD, um, and I want to do a shout out here to this website called stablecoins. What the fuck? Excuse my French. Um, yeah. But it's something really cool that uh, some guys built. And basically what it does is it analyzes the market cap of stablecoins. It looks at the velocity oh, nice. um, and... Uh, at the peg. And so it gives a really good glance of, okay, well, what's the dominance of different stable coins of different categories and so forth. And they, they index LUSD. And one of the things that seemed apparent to me is that the volume for LUSD, the velocity, so the turnover, right, of, of, uh, of LUSD seems to really increase when there's a demand to repay debt. And the yep. rest of the time I postulated really people only have LUSD to deposit in the stability pool to farm it on curve or otherwise, you know, when they're, they're trying to extract money from their ETH, they would just swap it out by the curve pool to get some other type of stable coin to then to partake in DeFi with. Um, is that a good read of the intent behind LUSD or do you guys have some broader vision for, for the utility of that token or is it rather just a conduit? Um, well, there are several things in the question. So uh, I guess, yeah, at first, uh, the volume on the token is quite correlated to the price action on ETH, essentially. And so as you were observing, essentially, either when there is a big movement upward or downward, it would translate into large volume for NUSD, 
when ETH is dumping, it's because suddenly you have a lot of people that borrowed some LUSDs and, and trying to repay the debt. Uh, when ETH is is uh, is pumping, it's just like a lot of people have trouble and they can no mean some new debt. And if the pump is sustained, they will usually do that. <clears throat> but yeah, outside of that, there is still like a, a decent baseline level of activity on the stablecoin. Um, so the curve pool is the main trading venue. And since launch, um, it's been like one of the curve pool with the best organic volume uh, there is on the platform for stablecoins. So the funny part is you say the volume is low, but if you look at, uh, you know, volume relative to market cap, uh, for instance, today you have Frax, which is like, uh, what, 2 billion stablecoins, right? Doing 8 million volume on curve. You have LUSD, which is like, uh, I don't know, 160 million units doing 4 million volume on curve or 3 million. So, you know, in proportion back to other stablecoin, it's still very healthy. Uh, but I guess the main thing is, yeah, that LUSD is generated by contracting some debt on ETH. And so uh, a big parameter for the system is simply uh, the appetite for leverage on ETH. Right. And, and so my, my question, though, is you or I think that there might be more utility for holding LUSD if there were multiple uses for it. But but it seems that oh, there's there's a there's a large amount of LUSD that just goes into the stability pool. There's a small amount that's or small quote unquote you know there's a good amount that still stays in the curve pool. And then the remainder you know like I guess there are some people that just hold LUSD as a decentralized alternative to USDC or Tether, mm -hmm. right? Similarly to how you might use Dai. Um, but but my assumption was well if you want to partake in DeFi and farm elsewhere then you would swap your LUSD out you know so it's it's just like a vehicle for that transaction but as you talk about the team doing business development um I, I was just wondering if if that's an objective like to create more utility for LUSD or whether it's not so much I mean uh, it's, it's part of it but um there are already like quite a decent ecosystem on on top of what we were offering so first let's not downplay the stability pool right because <laughs> just for the readers learning about it for the first time, over the last two weeks, it returned about 600% API to depositors and enabled them to buy an, what could be an absolute generational bottom of ETH with a 10% discount. So you get a 10% discount on the, on the dump, essentially. And what we've seen, for instance, one of the figures I have in mind is last week, I think there was the biggest liquidation ever happening on liquidity, a trove with 60 million dollar of debt so like almost a fourth of the supply passed back when it happened that got liquidated and it means the depositor of the stability pool then bought ETH on an average price of 860 dollar and they bought 70,000 ETH so you know not a small amount so it's mm -hmm. essentially the best place in the whole market plus it's fully trustless and you can get rugged to buy the ETH dips if there is a massive dip and then a chain of liquidation. So this only for me, even if you know LUSD was not unstoppable and nothing else, just that would make it valuable. But now you have many things on top of that, including uh, many flavor of this, this stability pool. So we have quite a few integrations and you know you can just deposit into the stability pool yourself, you deposit LUSD, you get ETH and liquidity tokens. But if you want something that auto compounds, you can go with uh, the beta protocol. I think, yeah, we're gonna talk about it later. Yeah, uh, sure. But, you, you could do that now. Oh, you know. Okay, yeah. 
And so essentially what beta protocol does for you is they, they sell the ease obtained from liquidations as fast as they can back to LUSD. And so, you know, since there is a 10% fee when you get liquidated that goes to the stability pool depositors, well, it, it's still a profitable operation and, it, and it, users can maintain a 100% LUSD exposure. They're still farming LQTY. And then if they want, they can deposit this into Picorn and Picorn will also compound the LQTY for them. And so they get essentially an up-only LUSD position. Right, right. Okay, okay. So let's let's just unpack that for a second. So you said mm -hmm. B protocol. So how I would think about it is B protocol makes it so that the, the stability pool doesn't run out. So the liquidity pool buys ETH, right? And then they swap that ETH as soon as they can back to IUSD. And yeah. do they do that by the curve pool or are they lending against that? No, they're not lending. They just swap the uh, the ETH obtained back to LUSD straight. Okay. Okay. And and but that how is that traded? Like, what's the market? I, I imagine the curve pool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So so that swap back to LUSD. LUSD is deposited again. And so actually for liquidity, it's great because it means that there's a backstop effectively. Exactly. Or, or, yeah. So the integration is very synergistic and super interesting because if you think about it, B protocol is essentially a, a way to, to describe it would be the stability pool as a service for other protocols who don't have a stability pool. That's what they do initially. But with liquidity, we have a stability pool. So essentially we have B protocol built in. But what they did with the integration is really smart because uh, one of the um, challenge with the stability pool is that we don't want it depleted. Uh, as we mentioned before, there is it's accounted for at the protocol level. There is a mechanism to liquidate even if there is zero balance in the stability pool, but it's not the best case scenario. We'd rather have it happen with the stability pool. And so in that sense, B protocol is really useful because when a massive liquidation happened last, like, like last week, the stability pools get depleted of a lot of LUSDs that are required to clear the debt and purchase ease. And thanks to a B protocol compounding back the ETH obtained into LUSD and redepositing very quickly, it, it keeps like a base level of, of LUSD into the pool, essentially. Yeah, that's really awesome. Okay, so basically, if you wanna if you wanna express an opinion on the solidity of liquidity, no pun intended on that coding language, <laughs> um, but you don't want ETH exposure you might LP in B protocol instead of do that in the stability pool, where with, with volatility, you may end up with ETH rather than stables. Yeah. So uh, the B protocol uses a stability pool. So it's really just a, a flavor of stability pool, I want to say. It's about, you know, they deposit into the stability pool, but then they do some more management for you. The management being selling those ETH as fast as possible. That's, let's say, layer one. And then if you want, you can also go at layer two, which is depositing that into Picor, and then Picor well, is integrating B protocol, so it will sell automatically your ETH for you back to LUSD to deposit into the pool. But mm -hmm. Picor also compounds the LQTY token that you farm when you're in the stability pool. So with Picor, it's really 100% LUSD exposure all the time. Oh, that's cool. Is that a new vault? Like, is that a vault for LQTY, or is that a vault for LUSD? So it's a vault for for uh, LUSD on Picor. Okay, okay. And then the LQTY rewards are also compounded back. Exactly. And they also have a vault for LQTY, actually. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, so Pickle's a protocol that I, I think is really great. Like, they're, they're super community first, um, and I would give them a shout out personally. So um, we can add these things in the show notes, so we'll make sure yeah. to do that. <laughs>
Now that we're on this topic, though, awesome, yeah. I, I would love for you to kind of unpack what happened during this June liquidation. Um, you know, I saw that roughly 75% of the stability pool was, was basically used for liquidations, and that all went well, but it did mean that the outstanding uh, market cap of LUSD decreased significantly. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, and so I'm just kind of curious to hear how you think this plays out in terms of maybe the the, the regrowth of LUSD and also what would have happened if the pool were to have depleted? Like, how does that all play out? So, uh, yeah, I guess we mentioned it two times so we can discuss it quickly. It gets a, a bit technical at this point, but there is a mechanism to ensure uh, liquidations when there, is, there are no funds left in the stability pool. Essentially, it's using the other trove on the platform, uh, so other depositors, but the operation is profitable, so they're not losing money in the process. Uh, yeah, it's detailed in the doc if you want to run down on this, but it's actually very hard to deplete the, the stability pool because the thing is, the uh, let's put it like that, the more empty the pool is, it means that there was massive liquidations and most likely the ease price is, is like dumping really hard, the more attractive it becomes to deposit into the stability pool for two reasons. First, because stability pool has a liquidity incentives shared between all depositors. So there is almost nothing left as deposit into the stability pool. You put some LUSD in there and now you're, you're earning a lot of liquidity tokens compared to, you know, I don't know, two weeks before when there were like 70 million in the stability pool. That's one. But now it also means you're getting a greater share of the liquidation. So there is a double effect that makes it so that the more depleted the pool in is, the more, more attractive it becomes to deposit into it. And um, yeah, we're starting to see this behavior that we can expect more for the end game of liquidity, uh, what we call just-in-time deposits. So it's essentially users that would be doing something else with LUSD or not even owning LUSD in the first place that just open, opportunistically uh, deposit into the stability pool but, you know, almost just in time. So like right before the bloodbath right. starts. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, that's like, that's a very profitable operation, essentially. Well, this has been a way I've been thinking about the protocol. Like I'm, I'm not LPing at the moment, but I'm, I'm certainly considering. And I, I would do that thinking and sizing as much as I would allocate to my next tranche of ETH buys. So what otherwise would be limit bids at a centralized or decentralized exchange, well, if I take that same allocation and, and just put it in LUSD, then number one, I'm, um, it's, it's not uh, custodied at a centralized exchange account. Number two, I'm getting yield. Number three, you know, when the liquidations happen, similarly to resting bids, I won't need to be at my desk and it's going to fill and it's exactly. going to fill at like a wick effectively, right? Where instead of a wick, in this case, you, you get a, a steep discount. And also for some situations where... Like you're just thinking in terms of practicality for you as a person, but what we saw during the last wave of liquidation was, uh, for instance, the Olympus DAO had uh, they diversified to LUSD quite early on, the stablecoin because they really liked the resilience of LUSD, and uh, when the bloodbath happened a few weeks ago, they were staking in the stability pool, and so essentially they were just staking by themselves, not using B protocol or anything. And it was part of the strategy to accept the conversion to ETH, essentially, with a neat premium, obviously. So they accepted. They had like 15 million LUSD when they started. And I think they ended up with like 5 million 
but then they bought 10 million dollars worth of ease that is now probably worth like 15 or 16. so it was a nice operation for them and you know it's essentially like automatic treasury diversification for a dow through staking in the stability pool i thought it was like quite cool as a use case it, it is and we just wrote an article about treasury management and Within that, you know, like by default, the assumption is if you're holding stable coins, it should be USDC. But uh, I, I would venture to say that DAI and LUSD do have the, the level of Lindy uh, credibility that, that that makes sense to hold. Yeah, it's a strong, um, strong hold for a treasury, um, not just for the security guarantees, but for, for the yield it offers. And uh, also, you know, the yield of your yield it can offers because with a sizable position, uh, protocols can earn a decent amount of LQTY and they can then stake those LQTY for more ETH and LUSD yields that they can then compound one way or another. So it, it creates an interesting loop. Yeah. So I want to come back to your comment about the, um, the recent very high APRs on the LUSD deposits. And I just want to make sure I understand a few things. So first of all, there's a there are emissions of LQTY to the pool. And so it makes sense to me that if TVL is lower, that the remainder of people get a larger larger share of the, the emission. Mm -hmm. so, so that part makes sense to me. But then um, you also said that they would get a larger share of the liquidations. But here's what I don't get, because wouldn't the, like if the percentage of LUSD in the stability pool remains the same, so let's say 50% mm -hmm. is the positive, All right? right? then if the amount of LUSD outstanding in total circulation decreases, wouldn't by proxy the amount in the stability pool also decrease similarly? So therefore, the you know, everyone would still be entitled to liquidate the same amount. Like, yeah, so so could you kind of unpack that and that APR sure. peak? So it really depends also of where is the decrease in supply coming from. So uh, as you were uh, noticing earlier, the supply decreased massively over the last six months or something. At some point, there were 1.5 billion LUSD. Now there is 160 million. But, you know, it's also part of the system to adjust uh, as, as, uh, as the market evolves. But, yeah, so there is a, a bit of a redistribution happening in that, in that scenario. Um, um, essentially, right now we're in a phase where, because the supply shrink that much, um, let's say there is a bit of a yield premium on the stability pool. Uh, to, to put it simply, you know, like six months ago, stability pool was 500 million LUSD, sharing, let's say, random number out of my head, 100K liquidity a day budget. Mm -hmm. And now you have 50 million LQT, uh, LUSD sharing the same budget because it's decreasing yearly. So this is why I meant by this yield amplification, mm -hmm. just like, you know, you have, you're sharing the yield with less amount of, of tokens, essentially. So it kind of makes it more and more interesting to deposit in terms of LQTY yield, the lower the LUSD balance of the pool is. Yeah, okay. Okay, thanks for unpacking that. Um, so you guys, as purists, you know, use ETH as collateral. But we've seen some some derivatives of your protocol, like Vesta and Yeti. Um, I'm I'm curious how you guys view them, and also if there are any ambitions. And I guess you hinted at that, you know, with the with the new protocol that you're building, which doesn't really sound like a fork. I guess like something yeah. else. But um, yeah. So how are you thinking about that? Like, would you ever take this and add other collaterals? Would that then be be, be the same protocol, or is that not the vision? 
Well, the forks are interesting. We we look at them. Uh, we don't support them officially. Um, very few of them actually reach out to the team. That's also something quite surprising. Um, but yeah, they, they experiment with interesting uh, novelties, let's say. But so far, uh, first thing to kind of state clearly is um, all of them implement back governance and trust trust requirements into the protocol at some levels. So they kind of lose not just you know not just because they're not on Ethereum and using ETH as collateral, but also because of the changes they make, they lose this core property of LUSD, which is to be immutable and and have no governance. So like Yeti, for instance is an interesting one on Avalanche, um, quite decently successful, but it's essentially a, a Uber degen version of Liquity where they added support for dozens of different collateral, they brought back governance, they implemented the V model on the governance token where you lock it to kind of vote on some stuff. So, you know, it's like, why not? But it's, it's not the same product, although it's using the same code, you know, uh, because... The, this property is lost and the overall um, objective, let's say, of the protocol is not the same. Right. Okay. So you condone them and watch them with interest. That makes sense. And and would you ever expand then to different collaterals? Well, I think is like if we add another collateral, it means we create another LUSD essentially, or we deploy a new instance of the protocol and then um, you know, do we tie it to LUSD or not? There are a lot of questions that comes with uh, with that. So right now the vision is simply to not uh, not accept new collateral. But there are like some interesting discussions with fork happening, um, and we might be supporting like interesting ones. It's just that so far the one that came to us, and that's not many amongst the many many liquidity forks that launch, uh, are yeah they they were not relevant for us right well this can be a good public call to action then right where if, if people have conviction and i'll just add like my, my opinion to this if people have conviction about the the importance and durability of an asset like eth you know and that could be abax or something else like, but if, if you believe there's some sort of cornerstone asset like that then then this is a way to really increase the utility um and further bets on that system thriving um, yeah. And I guess in that case, they need to reach out to you guys and not mm. just run away with the code. Uh, which I mean, why not? You know, it's free code. <laughs> they do what they want. It's 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 a part of the the industry. I want to say it's it's like how it works. Hybrid competition, more intense mm. than anywhere else, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. So so moving on. Um, in terms of the composability, what are the things that you think are most interesting that are built on top of liquidity? Like we covered uh, B protocol, um, you hinted at this new thing you're building yourself. What, what is there and what would you like to see? Yeah, so there are quite a few interesting things coming up. Uh, one of uh, the things I really like too is uh, what DeFi Saver has been doing, where they provide some kind of uh, automation and what they call recipes on top of your liquidity trove. So like the automation enable automatic repayment or debt boosting, depending on the, the movement on ETH. And then they have those neat recipes where uh, essentially you can do in one transaction, they want to like flash loan some money for you to, I don't know, repay or make a loan and then open a liquidity trove. And, and you know, so essentially like migrate your position from one collateral to the other, from one lending platform to the other. So it's really nice 
because it enables people to kind of switch to a liquidity throw if they already have, like, let's say, a maker throw um, in, in essentially one fat and dirty, but just one TX. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I think the user interface of that protocol is beautiful anyway. And um, mm. I think they provide a front end too, right? For liquidity that's, yeah. that gives a That's part of the front end. And they do give a hundred percent kickback. So there is no, I mean, most of the front ends are in the 99% range anyway. So um, they're quite generous with, with uh, the kickback. Okay. And is, is there anything else that you would like to see built? Yeah, so I mentioned DeFi Saver because I actually want to go to the next step with them. <laughs> they don't even know it yet, but I can tell you. Uh, no, I mean, they kind of know, but we, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like slow work. Uh, one of the cool vision I have is, um, so Stability Pool, we just said, is paying quite nicely. There are like several automation tools available on top of that, so you can keep 100% USD exposure. Cool. What about automating the position from end to end? So, you know, you have a service where you deposit some ETH and that's it. You wait and you get yield. And in the background, what it will do is it will mint that USD, keep a safe collateral ratio, deposit it into the stability pool through a compounder. So you get only LUSD. And so essentially it would just generate LUSD yield based of the ETH you put in there. It would be like a, a collectively and automatically managed megatrove if you want. So instead of you putting five is to mean Swiss other liquidity and me doing the same and we pay the gas for all of that, it's just this massive trove getting the ease from everybody and frequently rebalancing as it's needed. Hmm. So yeah. it's it's essentially doable with DeFi Saver. Uh, the only thing missing is that right now um, you, you can automatically manage your trove, but it cannot pull from a position in the stability pool. So once they have this component, it's the one last thing missing to connect everything and have this essentially purely passive earning product on ETH that based on my mass and the current APR of stability pool should be returning around seven to 8% on ETH using fully trustless system. I mean, some trusted component like B protocols and so on um, with like a, a moderate amount of risk. So yeah, I think it's, well, it's an interesting one. What, what type of loan to value would you run to get that type of APR? About 200%. About 200%. Okay, got it. So stay on the safe range. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Well, um, if it's a DeFi saver type design, right, then it could also auto rebalance to make sure. Yeah, it's that... a, yeah. so it will keep like within a range, you know, and uh, as soon as it goes below a certain threshold, it would pull some LUSD from the stability pool to repay a part of the debt to not put the position at risk. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Awesome. Okay, um, th those are good things to think about, and uh, maybe are inspiring some builders that are listening. Mm -hmm. um, moving on to LQTY tokenomics. So, sure. in reflecting on on how uh, that was designed, um, you know, I, I noticed there's an annual halving. Um, there are emissions, I believe, to both the stability pool as well as to liquidity stakers. No, no emissions to the LUSD uh, mm -hmm. pool? So inflationary tokenomics, we leave that to other projects that don't do proper economic modeling before launch. Uh, liquidity is an incentive token, a fee-sharing token, and that's it. But there, is, there would be like little point in creating liquidity out of air to distribute to, to liquidity stakers. What are we, uh, an arm fork? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, wait, wait, but but your correction is there are emissions to the stability pool, but not only. to stakers. Yeah. And stakers only get a fee share. Yeah. So the stakers, mm. they get fees, but from two different sources. They get uh, essentially, uh, let's say, a bearish fee and a bullish fee. That's how I call them because the kind of index you're going to understand. So they get the bullish fee, which is when users mint LUSD, they pay an initiation fee on their loan, which is shared, is paid directly to the liquidity stakers. So of course, users usually mint LUSD or mint most of the LUSD when the price is going up and everybody's happy and it's bullish and, you know, this is worth a ton. Uh, so it's like the bullish fee. And then there is the bearish fee kind of, which is the redemption mechanism. So essentially uh, by paying a small fee, 0.5% baseline, you can convert LUSD to ETH through the liquidity protocol. That's what we call redemption. And, and so the fee you pay, a fee paid in, um, in ETH, uh, is is um is shared back to the uh, the liquidity stakers too so they have Got an it. earning boss in lusd and it is yeah so non-dilutive just, just earn a fee and the yeah. stability pools incentivized exactly and then the emissions curve of liquidity is halving annually right yeah yeah and and so one of the things i'd love your point of view on is my fear would be that you know you look at the lq2y chart now and it's just kind of down only, right? It seems like it's a farming token and people oh, are selling. Brutal. <laughs> I mean, depends on the time frame you're taking. If you look again, I don't know, like the last three months, for instance, I think it's outperforming ETH, actually. Interesting. Yeah, I'm taking the longest time. Like, I'm taking the yeah. longest chart possible. So there was like a time. massive price spike uh, when it launched. People, Because when it launched, we had an interesting situation where there wasn't that many LQTY token in existence because you know, they are emitted progressively every day to the stakers of the stability pool, but the stability pool was like a few days old. But then there was a massive amount of LUSD minting. So the very few people that were staking liquidity back then were making an insane stablecoin API. And mm -hmm. so it created a bit of, of uh, insanity where, uh, you know, you see, I think it went up to like $15 at some point. Uh, but yeah, the actual like, range was around five dollar initially before the whole blood in the market started and and we've been holding quite well since yeah so but, yeah. i don't mean to bash the token I'm, I'm just trying to understand you know how you guys see this play out because i look at this chart i kind of see it's going down recently since it's proven it's done well with the liquidations it, it is uh, recovered relative strength but it's not so much a price about the price action for me i'm more wondering about okay well um if if there's still quite a lot of emissions happening and it seems that most people are farming it and you know i'm not sure what percent of, of liquidity is being staked um but you know that that seems to be what what the, the price is expressing to me um it seems that the budget that exists to incentivize staking in the stability pool um is going down over time you know in like usd values and i guess recently that hasn't been true but also with the halvings there's kind of a similar problem that you have with Bitcoin, right? Which is, okay, well, if the halvings uh, occur, well, technically there's just less money to go around to incentivize people to, to, to do the work or to lock up the capital. So I was mm. curious how you guys think about that. Like, is, is that a risk? And is there some critical mass you're looking to achieve before some point um, for, for, to avoid that kind of risk? So uh, the first thing is we cannot edit or temper 
the emissions of token to the stability pool because it's part of the immutable code governing liquidity. So, you know, that's not something we can change. Um, now, the thing is, uh, the yield are actually quite high right now, and it's it's a balance problem for me, <laughs> if you want to come into my world for a second. Because mm -hmm. what's yeah. happening is, uh, with a roughly $1 LQTY, you have a stability pool currently earning 12% in LQTY, not counting the ETH liquidation. Well, the thing is, it's really hard to balance with liquidity, because if you go on the curve pool right now, you'll be making 6 or 7%. So we have a situation where providing liquidity, which is taking a bit more risk, is paying you about half of half of the yield of the other side that I, I cannot edit. You see? So <laughs> I have to beat the stability pool with the tax yield, which is hard to do. And can I explain part of uh, the unbalance we're seeing on, on LQTY, LQ, LUSD pools right now, where, you know, for instance, the curve pool is, is like, is actually uh, scarce in LUSD, because uh, yeah, <laughs> so right now it's like uh, seven, eight million LUSD for fifty million Swiss AV token. Right. So the and, and, thing so, is... and so th that has happened because people have wanted to take out their LUSD to cover debt, or it's been deposited and eaten up in liquidations. Yeah. So that's the thing. Is essentially either the when there is balance here, people are, are switching back to LUSD and repaying debt right now because of the situation. And I guess also some people just withdrew from the curve pool to go straight into the stability pool because they get a better yield here mm -hmm. and exposure to those sweet liquidations. So yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it can be a bit challenging uh, at this level. But we have a um, we, we've been working a lot on a liquidity strategy lately. So this I can talk about because it's actually public and it's unfolding as we speak. Okay. Uh, so we've made a proposal on the curve finance governance to uh, whitelist the treasury of liquidity to Vodescode VE CRV token. So this will enable us to take part into CRV governance, vote for Upur, and also vote on, on various governance proposals. So the vote is actually ongoing right now, just finished on Convex, and I think there is one day left on curve, which means roughly by tomorrow, we should be able to lock our, our first uh, CRV balance. And so it came with uh, a strategy where the treasury acquired about uh, half a million CRV token right now and might be purchasing some more. So we're looking into those moves where we can essentially long-term sustain the liquidity on LUSD. We did one similar on Optimism where uh, there is a, um, a DEX that launched called uh, Velodrome yeah. that offered an airdrop to protocol and uh, essentially, we played that launch quite well. We saw airdrop. We became one of the main pool here, driving a significant amount of volume. And now we have a bit of a self-entertaining uh, liquidity loop coming up here because, uh, yeah, every week we vote for a pool. And so we get a share of the uh, um, liquidity uh, rewards it gets, uh, the, the, the commissions it takes on trade which give us more liquidity to then supply the pool, mm -hmm. which give us more voting power to support the pool, which give us more liquidity to supply the pool and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well done. Uh, that's incredible. And the Villadrome uh, team, we, we really love. We had them on the podcast. Um, so it's it's glad. Oh, to nice. See yeah, yeah they're not too, too known in DeFi, but uh, I think they did a really good, good job on their launch. And uh, yeah, it was smart uh, of them, how they allocated the tokens. Absolutely. I mean, they took something that um, was 
in terms of vision, really improving upon the AMM model, uh, but maybe lacked some refinement in execution. And I think they have ironed out many of those issues. So I think it's a real boon for DeFi in general to have a, a good implementation of, uh, of solidly, so to say. <laughs> yeah, they definitely yeah. fixed uh, the, the, the main lacks of solidly. It's funny because it happened pretty much. There was a similar project that launched on Polygon a few months before, I think it was Dystopia. And mm. like they achieve a similar, um, I think they're doing all right now. And what's the same thing where they achieve like very good result with Polygon native projects. And then from here, they were able to grow. It's a bit of the same thing with Velodrome where they were able to activate like quite a few projects that were on, on optimism, including liquidity. And uh, now it's working like decently for them. And now other projects are joining. So like I saw that May Finance recently uh, you know, bought some tokens to get part in the game. So even projects that were not included in the airdrop, they see the want and the value in getting on board now and building the mm -hmm. liquidity there. Yeah, yeah, terrific. Uh, and I'll have to dig into that uh, more. I, I've only looked at it superficially. Um, so, so coming back to the token, so basically you're saying you guys are going to figure out how to more consistently drive um, incentives to the curve pool to make sure that there's sufficient liquidity, um, but you can't actually touch the emissions because it's hard-coded. So the stability pool is pretty damn attractive, uh, and that is what it is for now. Um, yeah. Yeah, ma makes sense. And so then moving on to the, the team tokens, one thing that I found remarkable, and there are many things that actually are remarkable about liquidity, is that you guys are not getting a rev share as the team for many of the protocol's earnings. Right, and hundred percent to, to liquidity holders. Right, a hundred percent. So, and we're not my... talking a small amount here. Just so your the listeners are in in the loop. So, liquidity is about a year old, a little bit more than one year old, and so far about twenty nine million dollars of fees have been distributed protocol level. So yeah, we're that's... talking two point five dollars a month, something like that. Yeah, awesome. Two point five well, million dollar a month. Yeah, I think that's a great testament too of how things can scale in crypto on blockchain. Um, but what what does that mean for you guys? Like, how are you thinking about runway? Because um, I understood you had a uh, one third of the supply went to uh, venture raise or investor raise. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's vesting on those tokens, but there's no fee going to. Treasury. So there was a, a, a private sale of the token uh, at the launch of the project a while ago, and it enables funding of uh, Liquidity AG, which is you know the company behind Liquidity. But again, here key difference is that since there is no governance on our project, the team has literally no more control than you on the protocol. The only thing we can do is the same thing as users do, which is borrow or repay or stake. <laughs> you know, there is no admin function in any kind. Um, and yeah, and then we also have a treasury, so a crypto-based treasury uh, made of uh, liquidity tokens coming from uh, an, an initial allocation. And uh, well, now it's getting diversified in a few different tokens. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, CRV, for instance, so we can sustain our liquidity. We got some um, veto from the airdrop. Uh, and I think there are a few other tokens in there, probably ETH and, and LUSD at least. Great. So is is that the plan for Runway? Is is that a combination of tokens vesting plus treasury that you're investing? And, and will that be enough? 
Uh, so the treasury is more to support the the protocol in the long run. So it's, we're really looking into the strategic plays that like bring something to the protocol for years to come. You know, like supporting or pull on curves who own stash and not bribing. So we can do it every week. Mm -hmm. And then for the team itself, uh, well, the company is funded and, and has enough to cover the runaway. Uh, I can't actually go into details here because I'm not even like too knowledgeable about them. But we have runaway at the company level, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's it's important, I think, uh, for people to have an understanding of because there is no fee sharing, right? And um, I think people must be managing or sorry, tracking the treasury on chain. Um, and I felt like I had to ask that question for a similar reason. Of course. Hmm. Okay, terrific. So in terms of the future for the protocol, um, you, you spoke about, um, I guess, this new protocol that you're, you're developing. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to go into um, in terms of what you guys have coming up? Sure. So yeah, maybe I can tell you a bit more about what I've been working on uh, myself. So I'm, I'm focusing more lately on uh, the integrations of liquidity within DeFi. And we have, we have quite a few exciting things coming uh, on that front. So I guess the headliner would be uh, LUSD on Avi. Yes. Mm. Uh, so we've made a, what is a pre-proposal for that should be close to getting to the signaling vote. And then we can make the IRC, which can then get to an on-chain vote, which can then be implemented. And that would be the first step of six steps. But essentially, we're getting there. Governance can be slow. But yeah, we are uh, so shortly, I can't give timeline because it's not of my doing. <laughs> but mm -hmm. shortly, there should be uh, LUSD on Avi as a probable asset. And then from here, we walk away up of enabling it, at, enabling it as a collateral. And then maybe also adding LUSD on optimism, on Avi optimism. And then eventually enabling something that would be really interesting is the efficiency mode, which is like a, essentially a super collateral mode, but only against specific assets. So, you know, you could say, for instance, to borrow LUSD, if you deposit USDC, you will get 97% LTV because both are stable coins. And so it, it enables some interesting arbitrage, for instance, on the curve pool. And so I think it's going to be um, a really like a fascinating integration from the very basic stage of just having LUSD as a borrowable asset to, let's say, the late game, probably, I don't know, a year from now, where you have like efficiency mode enabled on all the chains we're on to. Very this one, exciting. I'm, if yeah, you, I'm pretty uh, excited about this one. We, we should definitely make sure to include the links for the proposal so that the community can signal in favor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've got good support from the community. It's more like a, a technicality holding us up right now, uh, waiting on a response from the risk team. Hello, have you okay. risk team calling for you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. Now, they've been really helpful in the process. So, and it's really nice for me because it's it's like, Essentially, protocols I've been following for years commented the governance and everything where I'm now making my first governance proposal on those protocols for equity. So that's been like really exciting. So yeah, we talked about Curve. There is more coming on that front. But essentially, we have a whole plan around Curve, uh, accruing some CRV, vote locking them for four years, and then uh, exercising the governance and a few other properties of those tokens. Um, and just, I think it was yesterday, I published another one, another interesting integration uh, for liquidity this time, not for LUSD. So the idea is to um, add the liquidity staking through Pickle Finance. So, you know, we mentioned that earlier where Pickle mm -hmm. Finance has this vault where it will compound the 
ETH and LUSD you're getting when you stake liquidity just back into LQTY. So it's like a liquidity bull essentially. And so we, we are pleading to get this vault integrated into uh, APYNE, which is a future yield tokenization protocol. So it gets a little spotsy here, but essentially what it means is that uh, you would be able to long or short the yield on LQTY. And so uh, if you are in a moment where there is a lot of LUSD minting, for instance, because people are optimistic and you think it's not going to last, well, you can take your LQTI, put them into Picker, then put them into APY, and then dump essentially your future year token at present prices. If you anticipate you know, the yield going down, it's an interesting play. So it's this kind of uh, new layer of interactions that we want to allow on, on top of liquidity to just make it a bit more interesting and offer more options to people who want to stake. Okay. Okay. That sounds interesting. Reminds me of uh, Volvo, Volvo Finance? Volvo? I don't know. This yeah, some, something <laughs> like that. It's, it's, it's basically the idea is um, you deposit GOP, the, the, the counterparty token of GMX, for example, and then oh, with, yeah. the, with the yield on GOP, it expresses a leverage long or short position. So, oh, yeah, no, that's a different kind of beast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like uh, Appy One is a bit like maybe people would know Elements Finance or maybe oh, yeah. Timeless uh -huh. Finance, where essentially they all do kind of the same thing with different variants. The base idea is you have a yield bearing token and they take it as an, an entry, the input of the system, and then they split it into what they call usually principal token and then mm -hmm. future yield token. And so now you have like a token representing. So for instance, on IP1, it's three months epoch. So you deposit no, and then you have a token representing your future yield over three months, and then the principal one. And so for instance, you know, enables you, like I was saying, to sell your future yield instantly if mm. you think the yield is going down and you want to secure it. Or if you think the yield is going up, you could leverage the yield through the yield. So you know, sell your future yield now for more principal so you can redeposit. Like it's all kind of interesting construct you can do with this one. So, yeah, I think it's going to be quite interesting. Uh, and I, <laughs> yeah, I'm quite happy to get uh, a liquidity on APY. I think it's, uh, I mean, it's not done yet. I know I just suggested the assets for uh, the next wine listing, but uh, I'll do my job and it should happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it sounds like you're really making an impact and uh, doing your first governance proposals for Ave, I'm sure, must be very exciting. So, congratulations on that. Thank you. You know, it was fun. You learn a lot about <laughs> how it actually works in, in terms of governance. And yeah, um, some someday it makes me really happy, you know, that we have no governance at Equity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we can have a long philosophical debate about the utility of it. Like sometimes I feel like it just uh, is fluff or it's uh, pretense. You know, people, people are, are sold influence, whereas they have very little and they don't understand tokenomics and game theory enough to realize that actually, you know, they're uh, they're holding the short end of the stick, even mm -hmm. though they're getting yield. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of weird situations. Like we were talking about Maker early on. I think it's like for people interested in governance, it's really an interesting one to follow because it's you see a bit of all of that where, um, you know, ugh, I don't really know what to say. Like, from the very first day I discovered Maker three years ago, or even maybe more, I don't know. 
And someone when describing to me the process of governance and how governance was voting on the fees. And I had a mental bug, like literally a bug. I was like, so wait, the maker holders are voting for how much fees they collect on each vault. So they will be voting the maximum fees they can extract every single time, right? Because fuck, let's make money, right? They don't give a, they don't care about something else. And it's not exactly what happened, but it's a bit what happened. Where if you think about it, this situation is simply absurd. And any, I'm, I'm like very careful with my work. If there was any economic modeling being done on the maker protocol before launching, they would have not let governance pick the fees of the vault. It's the stupidest thing I've ever seen in the whole DeFi. It makes no sense. It's worse at every level. Uh, because essentially it bloats governance with useless decisions that must be made on every single vote and change often. So in the first days of Maker, you saw interest rate changing like 10 times a year. Insanity. Mm -hmm. And also they are they like they cannot make the good choice on this one. It's not, you know, like at Liquidity, for instance, it's an algorithm, it's it's like mass computing how much fees you're paying. Like there is a baseline of 0.5% fees. And then depending on the usage of the protocol, the amount of LUSD minted and the redemptions, it can go up to kind of protect the protocol if needed. But, you know, that's like a software making that call because the human would just be like, mm, I feel like a lot of LUSD are going to be minted today, so I'm going to raise the fee. Why not? But it's a stupid decision. Like, you can't back it up. So the only proper way to do such a call is to have it being done algorithmically. And if you think about it, for instance, that's what also Compound and Avi are doing. When you go on Avi and you deposit your USDC or whatsoever, you're not saying, oh, I'm lending them for 5%. Or it's not the Avi governance saying, oh, we're going to pay you 3% to provide capital. It's just the markets telling Avi how much demand there is, how much supply there is, and okay, we have something to kind of balance it out. But like the maker situation on this is just, you know, losing on every level. And it's like, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it is, it's very educational. You know, when I came into DeFi, I, I really committed to understanding Maple and, uh, sorry, Maker. And I found it to be very complex, actually. It is. But, but, but it's it like, if you understand that governance and how it interplays fundamentally with a lot of DeFi, it's, it's a great bedrock. But I agree with you, you know, a, a lot of the decisions are made on matters where, where that decision power should actually be, be saved for more important things. And despite that that is the case, the protocol has stayed, remained relevant, grown, you know, it's Lindy. So uh, honestly, um, more power to them, you know, I think we, we owe them a lot because they showed that this design is, is possible. Um, but it is a beautiful contrast to, to look at mm -hmm. and then to understand yeah. liquidity and see how you guys are the polar opposite. Um, yeah, and I mean, I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm, I'm at liquidity. I've been like, people can read my blog and see that I've been like, puzzled about maker governance for years and it's actually like kind of uh, crazy to think about it's blowing up only now because i think there is a tension between you know like essentially governance of most project which is like you were saying we're asking token holders to make operational decisions and that's like the worst of boss world because essentially what token holders should do is strategic long-term decision and then the operational decisions are made by like committees they elect or whatever, but people who have a kind of expertise. And yeah, that's the only way you can, you know, achieve like significant participation on your votes 
because mm. every time a vote happens, it's a significant one. It's not, do you want to raise this fee by 0.1%? It's more about what is the long-term vision for Maker? Or, you know, do we accept real world assets or not? All kinds of things that were like not voted. And that's the other puzzling part with Maker is it's, it's, it's like you don't have a clear vision from the team. But at the same time, there are like critical things in the product that were implemented without the community green light. And so you result in a situation where the community is just, they don't know where it's going. Right. Well, I, I'd, I'd love to come back to your original point about what attracted you to liquidity, which is its, its opinionatedness, if, that, if that's <laughs> a way to put it. Um, you know, I, I personally believe that to be fully demo, demo, democratic in a, a, a group context is not always the best way to get the right yeah. outcome. And I think your, your, um, your statement of putting in the company context, let's say directors in place who have a functional expertise to do their jobs, to run the company and then the shareholders elect those people. I think that that is a model that works. And similarly, you have the principal agent problem, right? Like, do these people act in, in each other's best interests and eventually the shareholders and the stakeholders' best interests? You know, th that is a challenge for sure. Um, and on the one hand, I feel like within DeFi and crypto, one of the cool things is that there is so much expertise from very many different angles that sometimes allow you to see um, things from a broader perspective. I think that that is totally true and I've seen it. At the same time, I think this bloat that you mentioned is such a thing. And you see it with all the larger DAOs, you know, Olympus had yeah. the same thing. It, it's just impossible to do anything like, like practical. And it's, it's a miracle that they're still efficient in the first place. But the reality is, and we have that too running an investment DAO, that fundamentally to get something done, you need a core group of people who for some reason, and it could be authority, right? It could be authority because people are showing they're putting in the work or they have the expertise. But at the end of the day, a bunch of people need to push the needle. Um, and, and otherwise you get something that isn't opinionated. Um, and yeah, I could talk about this for a long time. Um, no, but, I mean, but, but I, I agree with you and it feels like crypto is an exploration of this topic in a way at this moment. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I think over the long term, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a difference. And I guess this is also like a bit of the struggle ha happening with MakerDAO right now is like, the community is seeing that you know not much is happening they are like proposal going one way another proposal going the other way and it's not clear so they like they are discussing right now this interesting concept and okay i guess it's the end of the interview so we can chat about it it's like it's puzzling to me because the concept is like obvious to a two years old you explain dao to okay so hey i'm gonna make a decentralized organization what should i do first mm. well without any knowledge of nothing my answer would be I don't know, maybe a kind of text that state what is this organization for and that everybody agrees on. Usually we call that a constitution. Well, yeah. after almost four years of operation, the MakerDAO is on the verge of concluding that maybe it needs a constitution. <laughs> That's the state of the DAO right now. You know, it's like, it's crazy when you think about it because it's, it's so obvious. It's, it's, it's like a necessity for a shared enterprise is a kind of, framing document whatever you call it but yeah. it, they're only reaching that understanding now because of yeah how governance can get captured in like discussing small topics details and when you come up with a big proposal it's really hard 
to figure out uh, a path to have it reviewed and, and validated by the community. So it's it's a, it's um it's really hard to balance it balance it out. And I think at the end of the day, uh, governance should be minimized. You know, yeah, so yeah, not, yeah. not uh, all I, projects can be like as liquidity where it's no governance at all. Some can do it and should do it. So, you know, I'm really happy that Uniswap is like that too, for instance. I think it's it's awesome that we have other components of the ecosystem doing that. But then there are protocols that have trust requirements that can't do that, but it's all right. They can still minimize their governance. So, you know, what is the absolute least amount of parameters we need the governance to input on? Yeah, or you know, if if you're saying, well, I'm not uh, I'm not immutable, right? If you build a protocol that isn't immutable, well, then if you believe, if you want to be opinionated, if you think you have a good team and those people should be in charge, well, then let's not create the facade that there should be a community that dictates everything. But then instead, you know, because I already think that this is a step function improvement versus traditional markets. If at least in that scenario, even if it means that the protocol is iterative, right? It's approved upon and so forth. And if there is governance, well, I think it would be totally okay to say, well, we have a token, there was an IDO, it's investable, you can be along the ride with us, right? Along along for the ride with us, but the team's gonna make the decisions. Hmm. You know, I, I'm personally totally okay with that as long as people are clear about signaling that, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. So I, I, I feel like there are so many routes to choose, but it's just when you end up in the middle, when either nothing happens or there's the false pretense, well, that is when when you get the worst of all, all choices. Yeah, I, I, I think we touch another problem, which is the design of the DAOs. And I think essentially mm. none of the DAOs we have in DeFi right now, including major protocols, are made to govern. So like almost a year ago, a few months ago, I, I had the project launch a DAO and I conduct the kind of research of the ecosystem for the DAO tools used, what kind of process they have, and so on. And like part of the conclusion was a DAO needs a constitution. And that was like a novel one back then because only ENS had done it. Uh, the second one, that so far not a single DAO has provided to its community is what I call a scope of governance, which is mm. essentially ideally a one-pager document being very explicit about what the DAO can do and in which context. So can the DAO mean some of your token? If yes, what are the rules? You know, can the DAO decide they launch on the protocol on a new chain? If yes, what are the conditions? And so mm. on. Because, you know, it's the bare minimum. If you want your community to get involved, to give them a clear ideas of the different levels they have in front of them. Well, mm -hmm. the actual truth is for most DAO, you have to dive through the docs and ask questions around the Discord. And eventually, within a few weeks of interacting with that DAO on the Golf Forum and all those things, you will have a clear understanding of what the DAO can do and what the DAO cannot do. And mm -hmm. so, to me, it really shows this kind of you were describing before, which is they're not made to govern. Because again, if we wanted them to actually govern, we would provide them with all the key tools from the get-go. Um, another thing that blow my mind is governance forum. Have you seen a governance forum and how shitty that is? Oh like, my feels God. Like... Some, someone needs to create a solution. Oh, we like agree. Better, <laughs> better than Discord. Better than a forum. Yeah, Discord. They use Discord or things like that. But like, if you go, not cheating on any, so let's switch from Maker. If you go on Avigov forum, so first thing is, I can't log with my wallet. Like, what is it yet? 
201 or something like yeah, this, it's this web three. You know, crazy. everybody knows me as a token breeze. I'm token breeze.ease. Like, hell, if you want me to post something here, I should be able to click login with wallet and boom, I have a token breeze account there. But no, even on the governance forum on a, of a major billion dollar DeFi protocols, you're logging with a dumb email address. That's like the first thing, but it's already showing you everything, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm sure there's some protocols uh, or projects looking to solve this. Um, so if you guys know any, please let us know because we're frustrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's hard. It's hard. I think it's going to come. Seems like now we have an arc on, on like Web3 Social. And so I hope maybe one day we'll have integrations and all those tools could be used like as governance forum. I don't know. But I really feel like the infrastructure is, is absolutely lacking for, for governance. And Discord is actually not that bad because you can do interesting things with Discord servers where you know you can have roles depending on the balance or different activities people have. Uh, it's, it's good to organize like the day-to-day -day chat. But what's missing more is something for the long term and like those governance forums to get UX is bad and then they get really crowded with low quality answers usually you know so like i think there's a, a real opportunity for discord to create a business product that isn't just nitro because nitro is like gaming power users you mm -hmm. know people who, who run clans i think what they should do is look at slack and these equivalents and and spin up a a, a plan that is enterprise or business that would allow someone who runs a company or or you know does anything in a professional context to take and, and rem remain using the, the Discord interface so that users can join in that comfortable setting. But then for people who run that to have some extra features, like for example, um, they already have threads, but like to-dos and, and better integrations with other apps. And, you know, uh, for example, the inbox, it's all kind of cluttery. Like, you know, I, I, for example, have a decent workaround where I use this inbox feature. So I'm on Mac, so I do command I it pops up an inbox and then I can show see my unreads. So I'm in a hundred discords, right? So I might be doing fundamental analysis on projects and jumping in discords, asking prying questions to teams, but it may take them two days to come back to me. And then, you know, I don't want to have to go through all the chats. So <laughs> I need to and check the notifications. Exactly. Okay. And so that actually doesn't functionally seem so hard to build, but it's, yeah, I'm not sure why that isn't top of mind for them because I would imagine it's easier for Discord to add this feature set than for someone else to build a competing product that's better. Yeah, I, I really don't know what's blocking here, but I feel like the governance infrastructure has made no progress since I joined the space about three or four years ago. Uh, and it's actually, it's even getting worse because of like the blooding issue. So I remember, I think it was already a year ago, uh, a participant of the maker governance. And again, talking about maker here because it's one of the most documented governance, but it pretty much applies as such or almost as such to most other major DeFi protocols. So one dude from the maker governance was like kind of raising the alarm bell back then because he was just listing everything he was doing to keep track with the DAO every week all the meeting, then the call, then the reading, the post, and the blah, blah, blah. And he came up with that it was working, I think, 35 to 40 hours to take part in maker governance. So I was like, dude, this is a full-time job. So either you give me some money and I do it properly, or we like do some stuff to, to cut so I don't have to spend 40 hours to just say yes or no on a few proposals and know what I'm doing. 
And I think this problem did not yeah, really yeah, improve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes makes sense. And what a <laughs> what a great analogy or anecdote. Um, terrific. Well, hey man, we've been chatting for a while. I've uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, thanks for the transparency, and uh, it's really great to hear what you're doing for the protocol and your your perspective on DeFi. And it makes me very optimistic about what's going to happen with liquidity and uh, and everything you're working on. Well, awesome. Yeah, that was a, a nice chat. Thanks for, for having me.